This series that we're finishing up, Training the Twelve, we have been examining the life and the lessons of Jesus and the Apostles. We've spent the last five weeks uh, in this upper room with Jesus and the Apostles, listening to Jesus' teachings, thinking about how they applied to those Apostles and how they applied to us. As we think about those lessons, I have tried to give us a summation of each of those with one sentence or so that you can fill in if you're a a type A that likes to fill in those blanks. Uh, The first lesson is that we all need to be washed. The lesson of Jesus washing the apostles' feet was not just about doing good and serving others, certainly okay to do, but it was a lesson really about the gospel, that regardless of where you are, you need the cleansing of Jesus. The second lesson of the bread of betrayal that he passed to Judas, uh, that we are called to love as Jesus loved. And love is messy because people mess up. People are messy. That's why they need a Messiah. And so as we think about partaking of the bread, just as the apostles did that night, we realize at some point we all have betrayed. We all have messed up, fallen short of what God called us to do. And even so, Jesus continues to love us, and he calls us to love others in the same way. But the third lesson we talked about, we have to have faith to overcome fear. This was probably the biggest challenge to the apostles that night and for many nights to come. As they now realized how much pressure this was, Jesus was calling them to finish the work of kingdom building, which he had started. When he said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, they didn't understand that he was going to lay that foundation, but it would be them, the eleven around that table, that would finish the work. Uh, I can relate very well uh, to the apostles that night. I don't know, it sat on me heavy today. Um, And not that I didn't know today was coming. We all did. Uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine, Phil Brookman, who's the preaching minister at the Memorial Road Church of Christ, congregation about three times our size. Uh, One of our lunches that we went out together, he... uh, I asked him, I said, well, what is it like? Because he and I are in similar positions in that he was their youth minister for a long time, did a good job. And then uh, when it came time where they were looking to um, fill the preaching position, uh, he put his name in the hat and, and they, uh, and rightly so, decided to choose him to be the guy. Now, that's a different kind of world because you go from one position to the other And I was just so blessed to be able to hear from him about that. But one of the things that he said stuck with me. He said, it's a lot of pressure. And I completely identify with that. Uh, Steve and Cindy have done a wonderful job. um, And the only problem with people who do a wonderful job is for the folks who have to follow them. Uh, Mike Ward understands that tremendously. Uh, (laughs) Mike's doing a great job, and, uh, and 20 years from now when Mike uh, decides to step out of youth ministry here at Northside, um, the guy who had to follow him will have a lot to live up to, a lot of pressure. But it's a lot of pressure to follow the guy who's done a great job, and this is what the 11 face, and this is what Jesus was calling them to 
And then last, uh, this, two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus would help the eleven through that. Is that he was going to remain with them, not in the incarnate form that he had taken, but with his uh, personal helper who would not just walk beside them, but who would dwell with them. The promise to them is that we are not alone. The promise to us is that we are not alone. We have a helper within us. Even though we can't see him, we can see the result of him. You don't, just with where we are as a, as a family, been thinking a lot about the future. Where, where should Northside be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road? But it's part of wisdom is not just looking ahead, but also looking back. And, and looking back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, to look not just where you're going, but to see how far you've come. It is only the power of the Spirit that makes this possible. Individuals, groups of individuals, families, congregations. Um, we can make our dent in the universe, but it's always the Spirit working in us and through us. And that was Jesus' promise. He makes us better and stronger and greater than we'll ever be on our own. If you'll turn with me, this final lesson uh, that Jesus finishes up, and I think, at least according to John's account, is, is probably the last in the upper room. I think there were some other lessons that we're not going to go into that were in the garden and, and all of that. But the way he phrases the end of verse 31 makes me think that this last section is, is where I want to stop for this particular, uh, this particular lesson. John chapter 14, verses 27 through 31. Uh, it should say lesson 5 up there. We are at lesson 5. You open along in your Bibles, uh, with, in your Bibles to John chapter 14, verses 27 through 31. This is what Jesus gives to his students his last night on earth in that final few moments with them in this room. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You've heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father, and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now. Let us leave. In every lesson that we've covered thus far, we've, we've started with a basic problem or struggle that Jesus is addressing. And the basic problem tonight is a totally normal, natural one. The apostles were scared. They're scared, I think, on a whole lot of levels. 
Think for just a minute of all that he had spoken to them so far, at least as John records it that night in the room. Think about this. Think of these lines. One of you will betray me. Where I am going, you cannot come. You will disown me. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. And just reading those lines, just uh, totally not in context, gives me fear. For the past three years, they had walked with Jesus. They had sat at his feet, been able to ask him questions. And now, all of a sudden, it comes to this. And they realize that there's going to be a separation. Heartbreaking. If you've ever had a relationship go sour, a marriage go sour, you've, you've had a separation, a, a friendship. You were with this person in, in friendship. And they decided to, to go a different path than Jesus. And you decided to follow Jesus. And you realized there was going to come a time when you would not be together anymore. I call this the high school reunion feeling. Uh, This coming year is my 20th high school reunion. And I'm not sure whether I'll go. I don't have very much in common with those people anymore. We are totally different worlds. Even people I was very close to. Only for the fact that we spent eight hours a day together for four years. And yet... After, after graduation, all of us made different choices. Our paths diverged into many different uh, ways. And this is what's happening with the apostles. It's, it's kind of a graduation of sorts. Just as every high school student, just every college student has faced that, uh, that emptiness, that pit in your stomach, like, what, what now? Where do we go now? What, what am I supposed to do? For, for all this time, people have been showing me and leading me and guiding me and telling me what to do and, and, and guiding me in these choices. At some point, every person comes to that where they have to make these decisions on their own. And this is where the apostles are. Jesus has taught them everything he came to teach them. Uh, presumably, everything that he had taught them, he knew, Jesus, that they would know enough to do what they needed to do. It was a question, not whether they knew enough. The question was whether they would have faith enough. Not just if they intellectually were followers of Jesus, but if they were followers right here. There's a world of difference between a follower of Jesus intellectually and a follower of Jesus in your heart. My peace I give you. Now, you think about this. Jesus was facing the toughest circumstances imaginable. Terrible physical torture. Now, Steve said before, and I agree. I mean, many people have been tortured over down through history. There been lots of worse ways to die. But let's not mis- discount the, the pain and agony of the cross. It was, it was absolutely horrific. It was designed to be so. It was designed to send a message. Jesus was facing abandonment from friends, which to me is as bad or worse than the physical torture. I mean, the, the, the people he was closest to in this world that he was sharing bread with at this table, none of them, none of them, not a one, would be with him at Golgotha. 
He would face attack from the enemy. The prince of this world is coming. I love that he says he has no hold on me. But even if he couldn't take hold of him, remember the prince of this world can be merciless. If you've ever been subjected to one of his attacks, you understand. He was not going to show any kindness to the Son of God. And above all things, I think the worst possible part of the cross, the worst possible part was the separation from the Father. Something that hadn't happened nor has happened since in all of eternity, the separation from the Father. That's deeper than we can understand. But as all of this happened, the apostles had to fear that they were next, that they would be tortured, perhaps crucified, that they would be abandoned, that they would lose their livelihoods, their families, uh, any sort of semblance of life. Especially Jesus calls them to die. And yet, with all of that that Jesus faced, he says, my peace, I leave with you. He maintained the perfect inner peace with God. I I don't know that I am there yet. I remember when I was baptized, I believe I've told this story before. It was a Sunday night, much like tonight. And I went forward and was baptized by my great uncle. I went down in the water, came up, dried off, put my change of clothes on. People were there shaking hands, hugging me. Walked to the back, building kind of emptied. I left with my mom. I don't know if she remembers uh, this. Uh, But she said, if you will always keep that peace about you, Keep that within your heart. And uh, I was 12, 13 years old. I couldn't have possibly understood what gift she was talking about, the peace with God and peace of God. But this is the, the, the gift that Jesus offers to the apostles, to all of us sitting here. He offers us peace. I leave with you my peace. I give to you not as the world gives. Do I give to you? Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Jesus offered them peace. This seems like a strange gift. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which is probably a word you may have heard before. But it's not just the absence of conflict. In our world today, a lot of people are advocates of peace. But that's hard to do when there's evil in the world. That basically means the only way for peace is for evil to prevail. Shalom is quite the opposite. Shalom is peace. It is the highest intended good of God coming to you. That's a beautiful thing that Jesus offers. It's one of the best things that Jesus offers. But it's hard to believe. In our broken world, we've never known peace. We certainly, I mean, turn on the news for 30 seconds and you'll see no peace. But when has it ever known peace? There's not been a time in in history when the world was without conflict and difficulty and struggle of good over evil. I restarted my daily Bible reading 
and so are in Genesis. And there's this there's this whole I was thinking about this comic uh, this topic of peace in Genesis chapter three and the fall of man, and from that moment forward, there is not peace but separation. The man blames the only other human on earth, his wife. It's her fault. The woman blames the serpent. There's punishment. There's separation between those three right there. And then the punishment involves separation of all of them out of the garden. It goes on from there as Cain kills his brother Abel. There's no peace. The descendants of Cain wander the earth. The descendants of Seth wander good against evil. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 1, we have this recording. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit will not contend, contend is the word I'm focusing on, with man forever. For he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. All the way back to the beginning, peace cannot happen with a separation from God. So do you know peace? Perfect peace only comes when we take our focus off of ourselves. Off of our problems, our troubles, our worries, our anxieties. And focus fully on Christ. This is the lesson that Peter learned the hard way on the Sea of Galilee. He focused on Jesus. He walked across that water. He focused on the storm. He was under the water. In the same way for us. Oh, you might not get wet, but you'll drown in your sorrows, your fears, your worries, your anxieties. And only because you took your focus off Jesus, the source of peace. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, the Old Testament prophecy concerning, in part, Messiah. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Perfect peace is not just a good name for a Christian bookstore. It is a mindset. It is a, it is a centeredness about the Christian. There will always be the world falling apart. And people of faith are the ones who don't because inwardly they're centered. They have peace. Shalom. They have that with God. And if they have that with God and they don't forget it, there's nothing that can go bad enough in this world that can jostle that kind of peace. This is what Jesus gave them. Now we have to think about this very carefully because it's there's one before the other. We don't want to get the cart before the horse. Only by receiving peace with God can we respond, can we live can we outwardly proclaim the peace of God? You can't have it the other way around. 
Now, I've kind of titled this under two different ways of, of looking at it. The first is positional peace. Number one there on your handout. Positional peace is the peace with God. And that only happens through Christ. Before Christ, I was, you were. Before Christ, everyone is an enemy of God, regardless of how good you are. I've noticed this when you, you know, standing next to an elevator, uh, someone in an elevator or sitting next to them on an airplane, and you're making casual chit-chat, and it gets around to what do you do. And, you know, when you say you're in ministry, there's the... Uh, and no apologies to the lesson this morning, the straightening the tie effect, okay? When they find out you're in ministry, you know, it's, uh, oh, oh, man, I better behave. This guy's, this guy's one of the good ones. And they start to give you the list. They start to give you the list about how good they are and why they're good, and little knowing that, in my mind, I'm thinking, you don't have to, I'm not the one you have to answer to. I don't, you know, i got to answer the same guy you do. We think of, human beings think of peace coming by achievements and by, by, by a level of goodness. We rate it on our own scale, and it's different for everyone. There's good and bad, and there's all sorts of steps. But if we can stack up enough good, then we've somehow merited our, our goodness, our acceptableness toward God, which is totally anti-gospel. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes this, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Before Christ, we're all enemies of God. There is no peace before Christ. Oh, you can feel relaxed. You can try to fill your life with all sorts of stuff. But there is no true, lasting peace Without Jesus Christ. That's what my mom was referring to all those many nights ago. When you become a Christian, you are at peace with God. This is a factual reality. This is not based on a feeling, on an emotion, on a thinking, on an understanding. When I was 13 that night, when I was baptized into Christ, I was at peace with God. God, regardless of whether I understood it, whether I believed it, whether I felt it, I was at peace with God, not because of what I had done, but because of what he had done 2,000 years ago. The only way to this peace is through Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, Paul will say in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have peace with God, odds are you do not have a relationship with Jesus. He's the only way you can have peace and no peace. This peace, peace with God, is foundational to the next, to the second one, the one in green, the peace of God. What I call practical peace. This is the peace that I think Jesus offers to the disciples in verse 27. My peace I give to you. It's the result of the Spirit's presence. Remember the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22? The first three, love, joy, peace. 
And as I think of people that I've looked up to in my faith, people that have walked beside me, some still here in this world, some long gone to their reward, I often think that the thing most struck me most deeply about their faith is that not much seemed to rattle their lives because they had peace with God. And because they had peace with God, they had the peace of God. This peace deals with the past, all the hurts, habits, and hang-ups that we might talk about. It protects the present. Right now, today, you have stuff that you're worried about. One time, Craig Dossie was praying, and he said, he used a phrase that I like to use. He said something about, Lord, we know that so many of the things that we worry about will not matter in 200 trillion years. So that's that's a test I like to think about. Think of the things you're worried about today, you're not going to worry about in 200 trillion years. That's where the peace of God, it protects, deals with the past, protects the present, and it promises the future. How could Jesus leave them peace on the darkest night of their and his life? Because he, could, because he believed it, because he knew the promises were true. This peace rules our responses. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. You can turn there. Paul writes... Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. The word rule there is a similar description for like an umpire. Looking at James Wilson, you know. Regardless of the passion of either team and their belief of what they saw, ultimately, when James calls it, that's it. This is what Paul is saying. Peace of God rules. There's, there's passions, fears, problems in your life. The peace of God rules, calls it, and says, we're not going to worry about these things because in two trillion years, they're not going to matter. Or 200 trillion. It anchors our actions and our attitude. Paul identified this struggle. He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do this through him who gives me strength. That rule, uh, that peace doesn't just rule how you respond to people and how you live. It anchors your attitudes. It anchors your actions. And this is how James can say in James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Peace. And this is how it can rule our relationships. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Boy, if you're centered, if you're grounded, if you are, if you have the peace with God, then it's a lot easier to let stuff go. It's a lot easier to forgive because all of all you've been forgiven. It's a lot easier to show others mercy because of the mercy you've been shown. It's a lot easier to extend grace 
because of all you've been given. Again, peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the answer in trouble. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What Jesus is saying there is so much more than they, maybe even we, can understand. If Jesus has overcome the world, then what in the world are you worried about? There's nothing legitimately that you can have worry or trouble or anxiety or fear when you understand that peace with God leads to the peace of God. Okay, so Steve said this morning, the goal is teach the word so that they can understand it and apply it. So we're going to go to the application and put peace into practice. Their promise is our promise. Verse 27, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I I know people read that as a suggestion, but it's not. It's as an absolute of command as repentance and baptism. Jesus is saying something to us. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. He's saying, don't panic. If you're troubled or afraid, it's because you chose to be troubled or afraid. You chose to let fear rule instead of peace rule. Jesus can calm the storms outside anytime he wants. But he can only calm the storms inside if we let him. We choose how we're going to respond. Turn to chapter 20, verse 19 of John. You're in John, hopefully. Chapter 20, verses 19. Now this is after the crucifixion. After all these things he's talked about. And he first appears to the disciples. Scripture says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors, now note this, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. you got to know Jesus half smiled when he said it. Because they had forgotten They had locked themselves inside a cage of fear. We had a question recently, I know your Bible, about how Jesus, how is he both physical and spiritual? How could he he in one sense have holes in his hands and his side and, and, and eat and all of that and also walk through doors? And my deepest theological answer is, I don't know. But I think there was a reason Jesus walked through the door. Because the door at least as John describes it, is fear. And Jesus busts it down, and the first thing he says is peace. It's not just a gentle, calm, meek, timid Jesus. 
He is trying to bust down our doors too. All that fear that you've got, all of that anxiety, all of that being overwhelmed is because you haven't let him give you peace. Read the promise from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. As Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, for people who are works-based, for people who are warriors, they read Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and all it does is get them more worried. What? Are we anxious about anything? I've been getting anxious about everything. Messing that up too. How can Paul make that command? It's only by letting Christ in and through the doors of whatever fears you have. The peace of God, it's only then that it will transcend all understanding. You tell your children, maybe your grandchildren, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the night, and they're frightened for the thunder and the lightning and everything in that moment, and you tell them, because you're a good father or mother or grandparent, you tell them, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And Jesus does the same with us. He's been through the storm. He's seen the other side. He can promise us that. So don't panic. And second is be patient. Verse 28, he says, I am going away and I will come back to you. I am going away. They couldn't believe that Jesus was going away, but it was true. I am coming back. Now the question is, we might be as incredulous as the apostles. We can't believe it either sometimes. It's been 2,000 years. But Jesus calls us to wait for him and his return, just as he called them to that night. I am coming back. If you're still with your Bibles, I know some of you get to the end of the handout. It's kind of my annoyance with handouts because people go, oh, lesson's over. All right, Acts chapter 1. Verses 9 through 11. This is interesting. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Jesus was was going up, and and the apostles were doing this number. I, I presume they had never seen a guy go up that way. They were looking intently into the sky, and as they were looking, as he was going... When suddenly two men dressed in white, standing beside them, so we go from 11 to 13, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I love that. Why are you standing there staring into the sky? You've got work to do. 
And just as Jesus promised them that, that he would return, the promise is still true. It's the only prophecy that hasn't yet been fulfilled. And yet we are as close now as we have ever been to the return of Jesus, second by second. We are. And sometimes we're tempted as Christians to sit there and stare into the sky. And I think he's still calling us to get to work. You'll know when he comes back. Won't be a doubt about it. Until then, you be about my work. How can I be about your work? I'm so afraid. I'm so ill-equipped. And I don't know enough. And I'm not smart enough. And I don't want to do it. And, and Jesus has one answer. My peace I leave you. The power that raised him up is the same power that will raise us up someday to be with him. Peter Closes this way, probably toward the end of his life. He says this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way. What type of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Or as Jesus would say, my peace I give you. Well, that finishes up tonight's lesson. I'll preview because I know you're so excited. You've been sitting on the edge of your seats for 38 minutes just waiting for me to tell you. Our Sunday night series is going to be called Unswervingly. And if you want to know where that comes from, it's from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. The Hebrew writer says, Let us therefore hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We're going to be looking at stories of faith as we go through our daily Bible reading challenge, which you'll learn more about this week. Tonight, if you do not have the peace of God, chances are you do not have the peace with God. If you'd like to have peace with God, we'd like to help you with that in any way, whether to put you into Christ through the waters of baptism or by praying for you or in any other way that we can serve. We can help you on your journey. Please journey forward. I'll meet you up front.